Hey, Crime Sound listeners, welcome back to another episode. And just a quick announcement that you may have already heard on our Instagram, Crime Salad will now be serving weekly episodes. Yep, you heard that right. We are kicking it up a notch and we're going all in. We are so excited to be growing this podcast more. And to add to the exciting news, Ricky and I are expecting our second child in September. So lots of things happening at the moment. But let's get into what you came here for. This week, we are covering the Menendez brothers. We know this is a pretty well-known case, but it's a case that has always been on our list. If you were paying attention to the news in the early 1990s, there is no doubt that you would have caught some of the coverage on the Menendez brothers, two wealthy upper-class boys living in Beverly Hills, Los Angeles, who brutally murdered their parents before going on a spending spree with their father's money. Now, 30 years later, Lyle Menendez is 53 and Eric Menendez is 50. Both are serving two consecutive life sentences and will ultimately live out the rest of their days in prison. Since their sentencing, there have been no new revelations in the case and the brothers have freely admitted that they were the killers. But a new generation has taken interest in the Menendez brothers' case. There are now hundreds of accounts on social media sites like TikTok and Instagram dedicated to defending the brothers, with the vast majority of posts coming from teens who were born over 10 years after the Mendez's trial, relying on videos of the trial, high-profile articles, and interviews with Eric and Lyle. Teens are using a present-day perspective to question whether the jury came to a fair conclusion. While there is no question that it was Eric and Lyle Menendez who murdered their parents, people are wondering if perhaps their culpability is more complex than the media coverage suggested. By all accounts, Lyle Menendez admired his father more than anyone in the world. And his favorite story to tell was how Jose Menendez worked hard to earn what would have been considered the American dream. Jose was born in Cuba to well-off parents, but when Castro came to power, his parents sent him to Hazleton, Pennsylvania, to live in the attic of his cousin's house. He was only 16 years old. Jose enrolled in high school and became the school's star swimmer, earning him a scholarship to Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. It was there he met Mary Louise Anderson, who everyone just called Kitty. By 1963, they were married and moved to New York. Jose transferred to Queens College to earn an accounting degree. After graduating, he quickly moved up the ranks at prestigious and powerful accounting firms. And by 1980, he was making half a million dollars as a COO of RCA Records. Kitty and Jose had their first son, Lyle, in 1968, and their second, Eric, in 1970. According to friends, Eric and Lyle were inseparable. They were brothers and best friends. Eric idolized his older brother, and Lyle was deeply protective in return. With Jose being busy and away with work often, Kitty primarily cared for the boys, but Jose still ran the household. 
He was very strict and pushed his sons, wanting them to be successful in life. Though they were born middle class, by the time the boys were old enough to remember, the Menendez family was living a swanky upper class life in central New Jersey. Lyle and Eric attended Princeton Day School and were pushed to be athletes like their father. They swam, played tennis, and were on the soccer team, with Jose aggressively coaching them for years. As the family amassed more wealth, eventually Jose hired private tennis coaches, but he would still watch their practices and intervene during lessons with his own instruction. Jose pushed Lyle the hardest, wanting him to get into professional sports. This only led to explosive, angry fights between father and son and an aggressive tennis game on the court. And while Jose's dominance pushed Lyle towards anger and aggression, it had the opposite effect on Eric. Eric had little self-confidence because he felt that he could never be good enough to please his father. In 1986, the Menendez family moved from their home in New Jersey to Los Angeles when Jose received a huge buyout from RCA and began working in the film industry, making even more than he was before. By the time of his death, he was worth $14 million. Moving to LA wasn't easy. Lyle and Eric fell in with a group of wealthy, privileged boys and started to commit small burglaries at the neighboring houses. All coming from affluent families, the boys weren't looking for money, but they were doing it just because they could. They stole expensive jewelry and cash, and even a 100-pound safe. When Jose found out what his sons were up to, he was furious, even threatening to kill one of the friends who were involved. Lyle and Eric only had to do some community service, but the burglaries were never put on their official record. In 1987, Lyle left his home and his brother for college at Princeton University, but he was suspended for a year for plagiarism. Eric made a few new friends and started to write screenplays. When he graduated high school, Eric began to compete nationally in tennis. His father would travel with him, waking him up early for brutal practices before games and coaching him the whole way. Eric planned to join UCLA's tennis team when he started school at the end of August in 1989. But by the end of that summer, the boys had made a choice that would change their lives forever. On August 20th, 1989, Jose woke his sons up at the crack of dawn, like usual, for some early morning tennis practice. Eric and Lyle, after practice, made plans to go out later in the day. According to their initial statements, they had gone to see Batman and then hit up the Taste of LA food festival in Santa Monica. They said they were planning to meet a friend later and Eric needed his ID, which he had left at home. So the boys went back home and reported that they found their parents dead in a bloody massacre. Kitty and Jose had been killed by 15 rounds from two 12-gauge shotguns. On the 911 call, Lyle can be heard crying, they shot and killed my parents. When the police arrived, Eric was a mess sobbing on the lawn. He told reporters that they had never seen our dad helpless before and to see him in such a helpless stage 
gave such revenge in our hearts. The police questioned the boys all night, but no forensic tests were taken of their hands or clothing to see if either had fired a gun. With no evidence directly pointing to the boys, the police turned their attention elsewhere. Initially, investigators believed that Jose and Kitty's murders could have been a mob hit because of the brutality. Jose and Kitty had been watching a movie when their attackers entered the home. Jose, 45 years old at the time, was shot in the back of the head in the den. The attacker then shot him four more times in the arms and legs. Kitty, 47 years old, had tried to run away, but was shot 10 times, first in her arms and her chest, and then with four shots right to her head. Kitty and Jose were also shot in their kneecaps to create an illusion of a hit job. The killers took their time picking up the shell casings from the many rounds fired to kill Kitty and Jose Menendez. It wasn't until 90 minutes later that Eric and Lyle supposedly arrived home to find their parents killed. Following the idea that it could have been a mob hit by someone with a vendetta against Jose, the police followed Lyle's suggestion that the murders were orchestrated by his father's business rival, Noel Bloom. Bloom adamantly denied any involvement and police couldn't find any evidence connecting him to the crime. At the end of their parents' murder, Lyle was 21 and Eric was 18. Rather than quietly grieving their parents, Eric and Lyle began to spend their family's money like crazy. Kitty and Jose's funeral was held in Princeton, New Jersey, where the Menendezes had spent most of their lives. While there, Lyle hired a bodyguard, telling everyone it was because the mob had killed his parents. He was driven around in a limo, bought a restaurant, a $64,000 Porsche, and spent $40,000 on clothes. Eric, who had stayed in Los Angeles, was spending money too on a new Jeep, a personal tennis coach, and had invested nearly $50,000 into a rock concert that never ended up happening. Together, they rented apartments in Marina del Rey, right near the ocean, and planned vacations to London and the Caribbean, all on their deceased father's dime. In six months, the brothers had spent over a million dollars. While the boys claimed that everyone grieves their own way and that they were just assuming financial responsibility the way their father would have wanted, the police weren't so sure. Within a week of their father's death, Lyle, still spending money in New Jersey, flew back to LA suddenly to delete documents off his father's computer. It was later revealed by an expert who was hired by Lyle to access the family's computer files that this was a will Jose had drafted over the summer that divided his estate up differently, leaving less money to his sons. Because of their high-profile status, the public took notice, and within a few months, Lyle and Eric were giving interviews to news agencies. In one interview, Lyle said coldly that he wasn't interested in finding who killed his parents, and in others, the boys described the night of the murder. In each, Lyle possessed a cool, unemotional demeanor, which surprised the police, but not his extended family. According to those who knew him, Lyle kept his emotional side hidden. Lyle frequently mentioned how he was ready and destined to assume his father's role, justifying spending money in a way that kept up with their extravagant lifestyle and running what was left of their family. 
While the boys put on appearances that they were doing fine, grieving their parents, and unaware of what had really happened that night, they were facing an internal struggle far different. Millions of Americans experience thinning hair. It's common, even normal, but it's not openly talked about. So going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. It's time to change the conversation and join the thousands of people standing up for their strands with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is physician formulated to be 100% drug free. They use natural, clinically effective botanicals for better hair growth through whole body health. On top of thicker, stronger hair without lasers or chemicals, Nutrafol's ingredients may also help you get a handle on better sleep, stress response, skin, nails, and libido. Visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for customized product recommendations that put the power to grow thicker, stronger hair back into your hands. When you subscribe, you'll receive monthly deliveries so you'll never miss a dose. Shipping is free and you can pause or cancel anytime. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code CRIMESALAD to save 20% off your first month subscription. This is their best offer available anywhere and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code crime salad for hair as strong as you are. Hey guys, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just don't have the time or energy to cook, especially something healthy. Our day-to-day is just busy. And honestly, I don't feel that great when I end up eating takeout for almost every meal. This all changed once we found Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest delivers delicious food, all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. It takes literally minutes to prepare, and I never have to think twice if the food I'm eating is good for me. Daily Harvest is ready when you are. Everything stays fresh in your freezer until you're ready to enjoy it. So you waste less food too. And no need to overthink any of your meals for the week with Daily Harvest. Smoothies for breakfast, crisp flatbreads for lunch or dinner, and food that's perfect for cooler weather like their perfectly roasted harvest bowls and soups. Daily Harvest never uses preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything, including their recently launched almond milk, which is made of only almonds and a dash of sea salt. That's it. This is super convenient because I'm always stocked up whenever I need almond milk for my smoothies. Daily Harvest is also committed to minimizing their environmental impact. They're in the process of transitioning to 100% compostable, recyclable, plant-based, and renewable fiber packaging. Get started today. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code CRIMESALAD to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code CRIMESALAD for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com, dailyharvest.com. You see CBD everywhere, in grocery stores, in gas stations, in health stores, but how do you know you're actually getting a good, high-quality product? 
Using CBD regularly is known to help with daily stress, but you have to use a quality product to get quality results. Charlotte's Web hemp extracts are tested 20 plus times from seed to final product. And unlike many companies, Charlotte's Web has their own proprietary hemp genetics. So the end products are consistent, meaning you know what to expect from each product. And they're a mission-driven B Corp, which means they're doing their part to positively impact their employees, communities, and the environment. That's right. Go to charlottesweb.com to get started with the OG CBD brand who kicked off this whole CBD craze and use code crime salad at checkout to save 15% on your order. This code works on all Charlotte's Web CBD products besides bulk bundles. That's crime salad at charlottesweb.com. In 1988, after Eric was caught on his petty crime streak with other local boys burglarizing neighborhood houses, he was given a court order to see a therapist named Dr. Jerome Orzeal. After the death of his parents, Eric returned to his sessions with Dr. Ozeal, and during a session on October 31st in 1989, two months after the murder, Eric made a confession. It was him and his brother who had killed Jose and Kitty. Eric trusted Dr. Ozeal, especially since they were bound by doctor-patient confidentiality. But Lyle, who was sitting in the session when Eric confessed, was furious and untrusting. Lyle threatened to kill Dr. Ozeal if he reported anything to authorities. After hearing their confession and being threatened by a confessed murderer, Dr. Ozeal was shaken and broke his confidentiality agreement. He told his mistress, Judalon Smith, what the boys had said. Dr. Ozeal made a plan to tape future sessions with the Menendez brothers. He needed to get them to say incriminating things on tape, so we'll have the tape to protect us. Over his following meetings with the brothers, Dr. Ozeal pressured and convinced Eric and Lyle to let him tape their sessions. According to Judalon, he told them that the tapes could help show a jury if they were arrested, that the boys were remorseful for what they had done. Under this pretense, Dr. Ozeal got Eric and Lyle on tape, confessing to murdering their parents and describing their reasoning. On the tape, Eric said they did it to put their mother out of her misery, misery that was caused by their father cheating on her, which is why they had to kill him too. From the tapes, it was clear they were both in on it and had planned it for a while. The tapes were recorded in December of 1989, but police were unaware and searching for evidence of their own. The detective assigned to the case had focused their search on connecting the brothers to the murder, believing the spending and lack of visible remorse was a sign of their guilt. A detective was able to connect the sale of two Mossberg shotguns on August 18th of 1989 to a man who was living in New York with a solid alibi and pointed out that the signature on the purchase form was clearly not his. Seeing a possible way to link the brothers to the crime, Lyle and Eric were asked to take a handwriting test, but Eric refused. 
The Menendez brothers continued living out their best lives, despite their parents' gruesome murder for months. Until early March when Judalon Smith, Dr. Ozeal's mistress, decided to lash out against the therapist after a bad fight and breakup. Judalon got a hold of the taped confessions and contacted the police. The police, now having concrete evidence, finally moved to arrest Eric and Lyle Menendez. On March 8, 1990, police arrived at Lyle's home and arrested him for the murder of Kitty and Jose. Eric was in Israel competing in a tennis tournament when he found out about his brother's arrest. Initially, he flew out to Miami to get advice from family members living there. When they told him to turn himself in, he flew back home and was taken into custody at the Los Angeles International Airport. Eric and Lyle were both booked at the Men's Central Jail in downtown LA. The brothers were each being charged with two counts of first-degree murder, and the LA County District Attorney's Office was seeking the death penalty. But the prosecution's case relied heavily on the tape confessions from Dr. Ozeal, and it was unclear whether the tapes were admissible evidence because of doctor-patient privilege. There were many lawsuits and appeals during this time, and it took two years before a final ruling was made. It was determined that two of the three tapes could be used as evidence. One of those tapes included Lyle, admitting that they murdered their parents. Eric and Lyle Menendez's trial began in 1993, nearly three years after their arrest, and it quickly gathered national attention. A millionaire and former beauty queen murdered, and it was their privileged sons who did it at their affluent Hollywood home. The nation was captivated. While the crime was spicy enough for TV, things became even more twisted when Lyle and Eric introduced their defense. Despite tapes of them confessing, the boys each entered in a not guilty plea. The defense rested their case on the claim that Kitty and Jose Menendez had been emotionally, physically, and sexually abusing their sons since they were children. During Lyle's testimony in September of 1993, he said that his father sexually abused him between the ages of six and eight, and that his mother would bathe him and inappropriately harass him up until he was 13. After that, their behavior turned violent and verbally abusive. The defense, led by lawyer Leslie Aberson, argued that the brothers had killed their parents essentially in self-defense, saying that they believed that their parents were going to kill them instead. When they didn't report what they had done, they said it was because their dad was a rich, powerful guy and weren't sure what would happen if the truth came out. Dr. Ozeal testified against the brothers, saying that Eric and Lyle had planned to kill their father because of his aggressive domination over their lives, and that they loved their mother, but she had to die too for witnessing it all. To Dr. Ozeal, the boys thought they had committed the perfect crime and weren't remorseful at all. Though they were tried at the same time, each brother had a separate jury. The trial took four and a half months, and both juries ended up hung, unable to decide if the Menendez brothers were victims of their parents' abuse or greedy, merciless killers. 
The brothers were tried again, but this time together. By the start of their second trial, the millions of dollars that Lyle and Eric had inherited from their parents' death was almost gone. Months of thoughtless spending, mortgages, and mounting, heavy legal fees had used up almost everything. The second trial began in August of 1995, almost six years to the day that they murdered Jose and Kitty. This time around, the media hype had died down and the judge didn't allow any television cameras in the courtroom to distract from the case. One of the primary witnesses for the defense was actually Judalon Smith, Dr. Ozil's ex-girlfriend, who had initially turned in the taped confessions. She claimed that Dr. Ozil had abused her and brainwashed her to undermine the credibility of the tapes, which still held much weight in the second trial, and to suggest that they were coerced into confessing. The brothers stuck by their claim of abuse from their parents as the motive for their murder. But this time, the jury wasn't buying it. Lyle and Eric, at the end of their trial in March of 1996, were both found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. The jury decided against the death penalty and instead voted for each brother to receive life in prison without parole. In an interview with Barbara Walters, just a few days before finding out that they would be separated, the brothers shared that they were grateful to have avoided the death sentence and were desperately hoping that they would be able to serve their time in prison together. Ultimately though, the close-knit brothers were separated for their sentences, with Eric going to Folsom State Prison and Lyle to Mule Creek State Prison in Northern California. It was a deliberate choice to separate them, after a detective who had worked on the murder case suggested that the brothers might conspire to commit another crime if kept together. For 28 years, Lyle and Eric Menendez were jailed on separate ends of California until 2018 when Lyle's security clearance was lowered and he was transported to a San Diego correctional facility with Eric. When the brothers, who only kept in touch through letters, finally saw each other, they both burst into tears and hugged. Despite their time apart, Lyle shared that his bond with his brother is just as strong as ever. In addition to being reunited, Eric and Lyle, who have now spent more of their lives in prison than out of it, have also both gotten married. Eric, in 1999, at the age of 28, married 37-year-old Tammy Ruth Sackerman, a woman who began sending letters to him after seeing his trial on television. They never spent any time together outside of the communal prison visiting area, but are still married today. Tammy has written a book about her relationship with Eric and believes that one day he'll be a free man. Lyle has also found love while in prison, having been married twice. First in 1996, Lyle married Anna Erickson, a woman who wrote to Lyle after believing he wasn't getting as much attention during their televised trial as his brother. She eventually moved to LA to live closer to his prison, and though it was a happy marriage for a while, they divorced when she found out that he had been writing letters to other women. By 2003, Lyle was remarried to one of those women he had been corresponding with, Rebecca Sneed. Like his brother's relationship, the couple has never seen each other outside of the prison visiting area and aren't allowed any conjugal visits by California state law. Outside of their marriages, in prison, Lyle helps run a support group for inmates who have experienced sexual abuse. 
And Eric works to assist terminally ill and physically challenged inmates. Though the Menendez brothers have filed appeals to have their case revisited and their sentences reconsidered, no such appeals have been successful yet. Given renewed media attention thanks to TikTok, there's a growing movement who are pushing to have them see them freed. Outside of TikTok fame, a Lifetime original movie, a Law & Order episode, and even an SNL skit have depicted parts of the Menendez brothers' murders. Lyle and Eric have given multiple interviews from jail with news anchors like Chris Cuomo and Larry King. In the years since the brothers' convictions, they have spoken out and expressed regret for the murders. Lyle has accepted his fate and says he is more content now than he was in the outside world. He acknowledges that he did kill his parents, and he knows that no amount of regret will change the past. Eric expressed a similar sentiment, describing his actions as destructive to all, and that it was the most awful devastation. He killed the two people he loved the most. While it appears that the brothers have come to terms with their actions and their punishment and the jury's decision is final, the verdict in the court of public opinion may be changing. As the events of the context of the crime are seen through the lens of a society much more aware of the effects of psychological and sexual abuse, the reactions to the crime may change. Now that you know the story, what do you think? Were Lyle and Eric Menendez two spoiled, rotten rich kids who wanted their parents' money at any cost? Or were they victims of years of abuse who felt they had no choice but to commit murders to escape their violent parents? Let us know what you think. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.